Welcome to the Nova Church's podcast. We are a vibrant, dynamic, multicultural church in Alexandria, Virginia. Join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. For more information, go to www.thenovachurch.com. We're excited to share this week's message with you. God bless. Amen. Would you just begin to tell him that right now? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Would you just close your eyes and begin to worship him? Praising him is thanking him for what he's done, but I wonder if you'd worship him for who he is right now. That God, you're so good. Hallelujah today. Lord, I lift up who you are. Not just what you've done, but who you are. For God, you're marvelous, you're mighty. King of kings and Lord of lords. Alpha and Omega. The bright and morning star. God, we lift you up today. Hallelujah. 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 I'm thankful for who he is today. I'm thankful for who he is. We serve a God who's a mighty God. It's easy to praise him. Everybody ought to be able to praise him. But there comes something of a transition when you can move into worship and begin to say, God, I worship you. Not just for what you've done for me, but for who you are. Amen. I think, I'm thankful that he's begun to worship me. And, or I'm thankful that I, I, he, we can worship him and, and we can go for it. And he says, worship me for who I am, not just for what I've done for you. I thank the Lord that that's a worshiper. That David said, I'm a worshiper. That I worship because I give you glory and honor. He said, worship me in spirit and in truth. There's something powerful about worshiping the Lord. Amen. Not just praising him, but worshiping him. Amen. And uh, excited about that. Very quickly, we're going to transition. Uh, Sunday school, you are dismissed. Sunday school, you out. Uh, Nursery, if you have a little one under two, um, please go ahead and take your little one to nursery. We have great, great people there. Our teenagers, you are out as well. Teens are out. Adults, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me very quickly to Numbers. The book of Numbers. Chapter 21. Amen. It's like a mass exodus. Numbers chapter 21. Amen. Now, I'm so glad uh, for what the Lord's going to do today. We're going to take it one step at a time. Um... As uh, I, I'm excited for this morning and uh, what I believe the Lord has for us today. And uh, I am, I'm going to be very, very honest with you today. As pastor has got a whole lot to say. And I just don't want to turn this into a two-part or three-part series. I'm going to I'm gonna try to jam this all into one sermon, okay? And, uh, and so you just buckle up and you say amen and uh, we're going to kind of we're going to drive fast today, okay? We're going to drive it like we stole it. And uh, we're going to see what the Lord has for us. But, but in all honesty, I feel like I want to try to set this up. And I feel like uh, early last fall, I was doing some studying and ran across this thought. And man, it's just kind of been simmering and simmering and simmering. And I was supposed to preach on discipleship this morning. That's to be continued. 
uh, FYI. And so uh, we are going to just take a commercial break to see what the Lord has to say to somebody in this place this morning. Um, Numbers chapter 21 is an interesting portion of scripture, and I can say I don't think I've ever preached this here, um, and I don't know if I've ever preached this fully as the way that we're going to dive in today, uh, but it's an interesting text. Numbers chapter 21. If you've got that, I want you to hold that there, but I want to read to you the Gospel of John, which will reference this portion of Numbers 21. See, in John chapter 3, you know a lot of people quote John chapter 3, and that's where Jesus talks to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. But somewhere between the conversation of you must be born of the water and of the Spirit and getting into the most popular, one of the most popular verses of the Scripture, John 3, 16, there falls a little statement that Jesus says in this conversation to Nicodemus. In John 3, 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, people just usually go drive by real fast from that. Skip over that verse. Go John chapter 3, 1 through 9, then they skip to 16 and 17, and those preach really good, but they miss that, that little nugget there. But if you go read what Jesus says in Numbers 21, that's where we are this morning. Numbers chapter 21 says, When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atham, he fought against Israel, and he took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites that they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Now verse 4, this is where you want to dive into. Buckle up. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way is what the ESV says. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no, mat and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord. And against you, pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, watch this, and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Some of y'all are like, Pastor, where are you going with this? Don't worry, I'm not going to bring out snakes. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent, and live. Mm. Buckle up. We're going we're gonna to uh, dive into some deep waters today. We're going to get out of the shallow end of the pool. But if you can follow along and hang with me, I think that you're going to get a lot out of this little text. So I want to preach to you today on this subject, hope in the hard places. Hope in the hard places. Turn to two or three people and tell somebody there's hope in the hard places. Amen. Amen, amen. And you may be seated. Amen. Woo, glory. 
For what we find in this interesting text that you read, you could probably read this in Numbers chapter 21 and easily skip on by. It's only five short verses in which is described and it really is a very easy way to compact. One verse holds so much too that you've got to get the context and the picture of what's happening in Numbers 21. And the significance thereof, because it's so significant that in the middle of a conversation of salvation and revelation that Jesus shows to Nicodemus, he references this five-verse passage in Numbers 21, which seems to be ideal and normal, being that Jesus was talking to the rabbi Nicodemus, who was having and inquiring about this Jesus of Nazareth, this Messiah, this Savior. And he references this portion of Scripture. And the events in the passage occur very much so near the end in the timeline of Israel's 40-year journey in the wilderness. God delivers the children of Israel from Egypt 40 years earlier. And it took them about two years to reach the Jordan River. And during that time, the Lord gave them his law and he taught them about worshiping. And when they arrived at the Jordan, they refused to cross over into the promised land because of their lack of faith and their rebellion against God. And what we know is, is that the Lord then sentences them and the entire nation to wander in the wilderness until every member of the rebellious generation, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, they die. Get the picture. It's 38 years past the moment of which they've been delivered. And during that 38-year period, that, uh, we find that God is faithful to walk with Israel and the nation thereof. He feeds them with manna every day and he leads them from place to place. He protects them from their enemies and he's faithful to his people. And yet we find that Israel grows sick and tired of wandering through the wilderness. They're tired of God's plan. They're tired of manna. They're tired of their leader. They're just, they're just sick and tired of everything. They're sick and tired of being sick and tired, if you will. And in the text, we find that they're journeying from the mountain, by the way, in verse 4. And as they come, they're now forced to go the long way because of an enemy of Edom. And they're forced to go in this direction that they didn't want to go. Edom would not grant them permission to pass through their land. And so they forced the nation of Israel to take the long way around the nation to go through a terribly harsh desert area and it was mountainous and it's rough and and it's hard and, and the people are now frustrated all the more and in numbers chapter 21 if you look through your bible with me as i try to peel back and dissect the text in which we read we find that the bible says in verse 4 that the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way the word discouraged has the idea that something is being shortened. What that means is, is basically their tempers were short. Basically they were quick to the trigger, if you know what I mean. You ever been there before? Where you're like, if something else happens, if one more thing happens, I'm gonna lose it, I'm gonna snap. Can I get a witness? Where's the parents at? Can I get a witness, somebody? Amen. If you got teenagers, you know what I'm talking about, right? You got little kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, if maybe you don't, you don't got any of those. Maybe it's maybe you've been there. Somebody at, at that just bad thing, bad thing, bad thing, and and the coworker says a, a little remark, and you're like, if I hear one more thing, I will lose it. It's like what your it's like what your mom or your dad. You say, I have had it up to here. Do you hear me? You're like, I don't know what here means, but I think that means I should back off, right? Can I get a witness? Something. 
Anybody ever been there? Like, I don't know. I'm just going to go to the other room. It's like, it's like uh, in Jurassic Park, right? Like, if I back away slowly, no one will ever know I was here. That is what that word discouraged means. It was a point of frustration. Their tempers are short, and they're out of patience with the whole process, and they're frustrated on the path that they're being forced to walk. They are frustrated that they aren't just wandering, but now they're wandering the long way. They have to go on a detour, and it is brought even more frustration and it brings the surface of their complaints to the surface and and it it just is boiling over with the nation of Israel. It may be advantageous this morning to remind us right here that frustration happens to us all, but frustration can't determine our walk with God. Frustration can't determine what we do or what we don't do. If we're going on a hard path or we're going the long way or we're going something besides, we have to be careful that Frustration can't define what we do, and we can't allow our faith to become frustrated. Can I get a witness, somebody? There are people this morning who are frustrated on the path that you're being forced to walk. Let me remind you that we've got to trust in the Lord. We've got to trust in Him, and we've got to trust in His ways, and we've got to trust in His guidance, and we've got to trust that I may not like it, but I trust that He's got a reason for it. I may not understand it, but there's got to be a way. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be some semblance that I don't know, but I trust in him. Amen. And we find that the people are frustrated. They're angry. They've had it up to here, if you will. And in verse 5 of Numbers 21, they begin to voice several complaints They complained that God and Moses brought them out of Egypt just to have them die in the wilderness. A common theme you see in the complaints of the people of Israel. They complained about the lack of food. They complained about the lack of water. They even complained that the man of God was sending them every day. Even though it was a miracle, it eventually became so familiar with him that they became uh, almost uh, contentious that they had to eat this manna, if you will. Can I just say this this morning? I never want to get to a place where the miraculous and the presence of God and the spiritual are so familiar that I'm bored or I take it for granted. Can I tell you today, we've got to be careful that the blessings of God are saying, God, that's good, but what else you got? for me. God, I'm thankful for that, but I want something more. God, I'm thankful, but God, give me something. Impress me today, Jesus. Hear me today. We've got to be careful not to take it for granted that the power of God is no longer sufficient, but we've got to understand that he is a God that is still good, and he is a God that still blesses, and he is a God that is still sufficient, and he is our God that can still supply all our needs, and I don't take it for granted. Amen. Manna, as he's frustrated. Manna, if you will, was a miracle meal. Remember, it fell on the camp at night. It was plentiful. So much so that when you do a study on manna, you're reminded that just the sheer nature of the miracle of every morning of over three million people being fed, that's a lot of cooking, folks. I know at the post they fed, what, 19, 16, 18, some, something in the teens. That's a lot of food. Some of y'all think you have a lot of food for Thanksgiving. Can you imagine three million people? And yet this miracle happens every single day. 
and from a, mathemat- a mathematician who did a little calculation on manna. He said it would have taken 240 boxcar loads full of manna every day to feed a nation the size of Israel. The amount and quality of manna is reminding and illustrating the grace of God and the power of God and the generosity of our Savior. But despite, in fact, of all of this goodness and all of the generosity and all of the blessings, what we find is is that despite those things and despite God's grace and even delivering the people out of Egypt into this place, getting them into a place where they're no longer slaves and they're no longer bound by by the, the, the thing, they begin to complain and murmur against God. They begin to lift their voices and they begin to lodge a complaint against the Lord. And in response to their complaints, God begins to set judgment upon Israel in the form of these fiery serpents. Yet along with the punishment comes a pardon. See, that's the beauty of the truth that Jesus references is that there's punishment, but there's also a pardon. There is a hard place. There's a magnificent truth in that there's a hard place, but there's also hope in the hard place. And, and that's what we're going to talk about. See, the passage in Numbers 21, when you look at it, it defines and it looks in the consequences of sin, but it illustrates God's love and God's grace and God's provision in the same situation. And the passage of Numbers 21 begins to vividly illustrate the things of God. And so what we find is, is when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he references this illustration illustration that here they are and here's the serpent and they are biting uh, and they're they're causing harm and they're causing sin but what we find is is that there was healing and there's provision and there's salvation out of that situation for Israel the situation we find degenerates very quickly into a hopeless situation as we understand that there's people being bitten by snakes and and there's no treatment for snake bites and there's no escape from the snakes and they're trapped into a hopeless circumstances in which they could not escape. And I want us to consider this morning from the depths of our heart of really putting yourself in the shoes of the children of Israel that they are there and they're looking for something and there's something, I what do I do? All of a sudden I'm stuck in a situation and I'm stuck in a, in a setting in which I can't get out of. For what we understand is, is that is the same application to sin. See, the reason Jesus references Numbers 21 is he understands in the context of the sinner what that means to a lost world. See, it tells us that even in the middle of those trapped in the grips of sin, there's still hope. There's still some opportunity to get out of that. That there is punishment, but there is also pardon. It just depends on how you look at it. So when we dive into this, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to read with this. And In verse 4 and verse 5, you see the beauty of the situation is that they're now delivered and they're entered in as we start to, to dive even a little deeper in the event of this dynamic. Uh, it's, it's even fascinating that, that just the verse before in verse 1 
2 and 3, God does a miracle. He does a military victory unto these people. And now they've already been uh, having military victory, this glory and this power. Now it's just there. They're frustrated because now they're in a situation where they're wandering again. And yet they see that, that they're now frustrated on the path. And in verse 5, we understand that their sin is why did God allow these people to die? Why is it that God literally does this? What did they do so wrong? Well, in first, they rejected God. In verse 5, the Bible says, and the people spake against God. They did this, and the Lord obviously judges them harshly. But get the idea for a second that there's a reason behind this. That God is not just an angry God that's sitting in heaven and waiting for you to, 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 to mess up so he can punish you. There's, there's people that have that theology, but that's not real. That's not true. There's more to the story. And, and, and God's not sensitive to that degree where he's just ready to say, oh, you messed up. I've got to punish you. And thank God for that. Can I get a witness somebody that when I sin or when I mess up or when I make a mistake, God's not quick to punish and God's not quick to to bring down punishment and judgment. Can I get a witness? That's all the people that are, are openly and saying, hey, I know who God is. All the people didn't say amen. Either you don't know that you're a sinner or you don't believe you have sin. We shall forgive you. But what I know is, is that God is sitting there and they begin to speak against God. They begin to complain and to gripe and for 38 years, listen to the record in which we find the children of Israel complain. In Numbers 11 and 1, the Bible says when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. In Numbers 14 and 2, three chapters later, the Bible says, And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said, would God that we would have died in the land of Egypt? Would God have had us die in the wilderness? They're complaining about their situation. They're frustrated and openly griping. And then we find two chapters later in Numbers chapter 16, the children of Israel then take it a further level. When they said, but on the morrow, all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron and said, you have killed the people of the Lord. They began to blame the man of God. And they began to throw sticks and stones. And they began to say, it's your fault that God is killing people out here in the wilderness. In the very next chapter of number 17, we see that they then say, and the children of Israel speak against Moses, saying, behold, we die. We perish. We all perish. See, up till now, you see in the four examples I give you that there's a pattern. God is gracious. He always gives grace and liberty and mercy. But there comes a point where even so, God finally says, okay, the long-suffering of God sometimes must come to an end. Can I preach for a second? I know that's not something that you're going to clap about. And I know, Brother Krog, they're not going to shout about, hey, God's judgment will come. 
But you can look at the glass half empty and say, God's judgment may happen. Or you can look at the glass half full and say, boy, they had an opportunity in Numbers 11. And they had an opportunity to repent in Numbers 14. And they had an opportunity to get right with God in Numbers 16. And in Numbers 17, they had an opportunity to get right and to repent. And finally, it comes a point where God says, okay, okay. Because I love you, I have to correct you. And I believe that is where could it be that sometimes God gives us mercy and grace and love to get our attention until finally he says, okay, I've now got to take it a little further, Brother Nathan. I've got to take it just to a little bit level because they're not getting the picture. See, if you just read Numbers 21 and you take it at face value, you can easily point to the scripture, William, and say, these people, God is a mean God. How could he cause vipers, send vipers to kill people? And there are people who take verses like this and say, this is why your God's bad. But what they don't get is that the previous four chapters or the previous context of the four experiences lead them up to that moment where God gives grace and God gives mercy and God gives time and God gives a place and a space to turn, to repent, to make the difference. See, up until now, Israel had been guilty of speaking its leaders and speaking, but finally they then cross the line when they speak against God. And this is where Israel's sin comes to play, where you may say, well, why is it such a big deal, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Now, watch this. The reason it's such a big deal, because instead of turning their anger towards people, they now turn their anger towards God. And before God chose them, he saved them. He's grace, and they were nobodies. They were slaves. God brought them out, and they are now frustrated and now they begin to reject God's promises and they are beginning to get angry and they're basically saying God you have taken us out to the wilderness to let us die and God has promised the nation of Israel that he's going to bring them into a promised land he had his word on it and the reason this is such a sin is because his word and they're looking at God and straightening out and they're basically saying God we don't believe you you're a liar that's why that's such an important thing because God gave them the word he gave them the promise, and they're saying, have you taken us out here to die? They're basically calling him a liar. They're basically saying that, God, we don't believe your word. We don't believe who you are, even though he just delivered them from the, the, the battle against their enemies. They just had victory in the previous verse, and now they're saying, how could this be? God, why have you brought us out here? Because they're frustrated, and they're on a path. They're in a hard place, and their faith is beginning to shake, and their faith is beginning to now get frustrated, even at God. And they're saying, we don't trust your word, but the word of God is always going to be true. The Bible says, Paul says in Romans 3, 4, let God be true, but every man a liar. His word is going to come to pass, and God holds his word in high esteem. The psalmist in 138 and 2 said, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for thy loving kindness, for your truth, for you have magnified thy word above your name. His word's powerful. His word is so true because if this word isn't powerful and his word isn't true, then we're all doomed. If the word has holes in it, if the word begins to not be true, then the law is not true. 
And that means that it could be arbitrary. That means there's no way to know who this God is and what there's to be sa- how, how to be saved and how to know him. And he's saying you cannot do this. And because the word is so powerful, he said you've got to follow the word. And so that's why we have to honor the word of God. And I believe that's why we got to read the word of God. And we've got to find the word of God. And we got to obey the word of God. Even if it goes against our nature, even if it goes against what we want, even if it goes against our preference, we've got to follow the word. But then Israel not only just rejects his word and rejects him, they begin to reject God's provision. See, in verse 5, buckle up. I told you you can miss this. But in verse 5, they begin to reject God's provision. Not only are they basically calling God a liar, not are they all of a sudden frustrated at God. They then said, there's no bread, neither is there any water, for our soul loatheth this light bread. What a statement. Get the picture. When God provided them with bread every single day, when they needed water, God provided them water. And they they find that now they're not appreciating the things that they receive from God. And two words of note in the scripture, and worth noting, the word loatheth literally means to be disgusted by. They said, we're not just unthankful. We're disgusted that you have given us this miracle bread. Oh, get the picture. God gives them this grace, and he gives them this provision. He gave them this thing every day, and he used it to keep them healthy and used it to keep them fed, and it was the provision. And they respond to God and say, we loathe this bread. It disgusts us. This is where pastor's about to pastor right here. May God help us when the blessings of God eventually disgust us. When the job that you prayed for that now you've got, you're disgusted with and complain about. Mmm, pastor's gonna preach by himself today. Ain't nobody gonna help me, brother Eric. I'm gonna be all by myself, right? I know. I'll preach something happy next week about discipleship. You'll feel good, but let me, let me go ahead since I'm already in it by myself, right? Marvin, ain't nobody gonna help me out. But watch. We find that they're now disgusted by The miraculous thing of God. It says our soul loathes it. Our soul is angered by it. Frustrated by it. God help us when we begin to be disgusted by the things of God. The miracles of God. The provision of God. What God gave you. And and you can get in your car and you can complain about your car. But it's funny that when you didn't have a car, you're praying, God, just give me a car. Now all of a sudden, God, this car ain't nice enough. It doesn't have the Bluetooth. Someone asked me the other day, does your car little, do the little beep thing when a car's in your blind spot? I said, no. I looked at my wife and said, I want that. When, when all of a sudden you, you can't remember that, that 2004 Toyota Corolla, it sounds like a jet engine driving down the highway at 50 miles an hour. You're like, man, I'm only going 50. It sounds like I'm about to go to the moon right now. You know, hear me today. Can I get a witness of me? That old car used to shake. <laughs> And get to the certain mileage, you know the car's going to start to shake. And you're like, come on, Jesus, let me get on. Can I get a witness, somebody? And then you get in the new car. You're like, God's good. And then all of a sudden, that car begins to break down. You say, oh, God, this thing's a piece of junk. Help us, oh God, when we begin to get disgusted and loathe the things that God gave us. When we begin to take it for granted. See, then they, they didn't just leave it at our soul loathes this but they added the word, this light. See, light 
in the, in the translation there means worthless. They said, God, not only is this miracle that you gave me disgusting, it's worthless. Oh, can I just be honest today? My heart breaks when the people of God begin to think the things of God are worthless. That when we begin to place a higher value and priority on things of the world than on the things of God. When our values beginning to say, God, I want this more than I want the things of you. We are saying to God, you are not as important as what this is. Hear me today. Oh, God, help us with a conviction to look inward and say, God, I don't ever want to put something that you have said is valuable and say it's worthless. God, help me today to be, uh, to be intentional about the things of God. Manna was far from worthless. And while they were in the wilderness, the bread was not only their strength, it was their substance. It it was their very salvation. Without it, they would have starved to death. And yet here they are saying, it disgusts me and it's worthless. Oh, God, help us to not be so pampered and to not be so convenient that we say, God, your presence is good, but I'll catch you next week. God, help me today to say, God, I know that your church is there, but I'll just go next month or next year or whatever. God, help us today to not remember that when we were in the clutches of sin, of how beauty the salvation was, that he brought us out of that thing to say, God, I know that I know that I was in a situation that was rough, but I thank God that you brought me out of that because you've seen worth in me. And God, I thank you today. I don't want to renounce the things that God has said. This is valuable and helpful and going to give you strength and going to give you substance and going to help you to survive. But not only did they reject those three things. Let me hurry quickly. I've got to hurry, got to hurry, got to hurry. But they reject the, also the prophet of God. They reject Moses himself. They speak against Moses. And it's interesting that when they reject God's man, they're really just rejecting God. And if you're going to live for God, I must remind you that just as how they begin to loathe, you see this one passage of Scripture. This one verse begins to reveal their motive and their attitude and how they approach these things. Now, all of a sudden, it's easy to come against God and it's easy to come against Moses, the man of God, because their heart is hardened. Their heart is backslid. They have drifted off the path. They're now frustrated in faith. And whether it be a moment or a lifestyle, it does not matter. Here is the decision that they're coming against God and they're now beginning to say, I hate you. And what we must understand is just as people rejected Moses and rejected God they will reject you and I as Christians the world will eventually say hey I know that there's I don't agree with this and I don't understand it and I don't want to live and they're going to reject you and I and it is a part of life that we must understand Jesus said the very words in John 15 and 18 if the world hate you you know that it hated me before it hated you and if you were of the world the world would love his own but because you're not of the world and because I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In other words, Jesus said, don't be surprised. It shouldn't be taken personally. It's not just you. It's actually me working through you because you're a child of God. You're a child of the king. You're chosen by God. You're a royal priesthood. That's what God's done. Paul adds to the truth when he says, yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer some persecution. So here is a nation in whom God has provided everything necessary for them to be happy, them to be healthy, them to be holy, and what should have been amazing and goodness turned into disgust. 
That's for which why they have decided that they turned their backs on God. And then they begin to despise him for his grace. They hated God for his generosity. And they criticized God for the guidance. And this is what the lost world does every single day. This is the world that we live in today. This is why Jesus referenced the relevant passage thousands of years later in a conversation to Nicodemus. And 2,000 years later in our day in 2020, it is the exact same thing. That there are people in the world that breathe God's air, eats his food, drinks his water, and yet they despise God's word, reject his authority, and refuse to bow to his will. And the reason is why? One word, three letters, quick. It's like a game of hangman, sin. Sin is the reason, which is why I know that it's not popular to preach against sin, and it's not popular to talk about sin, and I should probably come today and give you seven fun steps to make you a healthy, happy, holy person. Maybe that can be a future sermon, but as for now, I must follow what God has put on this pastor's heart this morning, is that we must be careful to not fall into the traps of sin, because here we find that sin will begin to destroy and the sin of Israel wasn't unique to Israel. It happens every single day in our world. And the fact that what makes their sin so bad is that they knew God. They were in a relationship with him. They knew his word. They had his very presence. They knew his promises and seen the promises of God fulfilled. And yet they turned their back on him and rejected him. Thus the sin and the tragedy that Israel finds in Numbers chapter 21 happens far too often to each and every one of us. And it's a price to pay. And this is where I hope that you will look with me and see this is the reason why. Now that I've laid the case of the reason why, let me begin to land the plane because Israel's sentence was their rebellion to God. And God sends judgment on them in the form of fiery serpents is what the Bible says. See, the serpents were... We're there. And as you know, the serpents are a symbol of sin. You know what the Bible says about serpents. If you don't, let me just remind you, Satan himself disguised himself as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. Throughout the Bible, the serpent is a symbol of sin and evil and rebellion against God. We find in Revelation, the Bible says, the serpent, which is the devil. We know that the serpent is a symbolic thing and it's fitting that the Lord actually used serpents to send amongst the people. The irony of that is that he used the very thing that represents sin and caused sin to enter the world to attack them. And there's something that you can get in the shadows and the symbolic nature of the text that's beautiful if you begin to just take a step back and understand why is it because sin is like a serpent and it holds tremendous power and it's always there and sin has the depths of our fallen natures and it's waiting to strike. But sin, like the serpent, we find if we allow it to sink its fangs in our life, will coil around us and choke the very life out of us. For sin will not stop until it destroys. We understand that the serpent, they're dreadful. They're called fiery serpents. Can I share this study with you? See, I don't know about y'all. I was tempted to bring a snake out today. But we don't handle snakes. Can I get a witness from the church? Amen. I got three or four amens. Okay. 
Snake handling? No bueno. Not today, Satan, okay? Hashtag, you got to go up into the hills somewhere, but not here. And I even thought it'd be cute. I thought, man, pastor would really get their attention if right now, insert, he pulled out. But I would scream like a little girl and be like, I can't do this. So I thought maybe Robert could come do the snake, right? I don't know. I have to find a manly man, right? Hashtag, ain't this guy. I'm okay with that, okay? I didn't take my manhood and put that in check. I ain't going to hold a snake for an illustration. I don't care how good the snake is. I don't even want a fake snake, okay? I don't even want a toy snake. I don't want anything. But watch. The reason they're called fiery is because this type of viper they say is in the Middle East. The bite of the vipers is said to be immensely painful. Research says that this type of viper that is in this region injects the venom that initiates a fiery pain at the site of the bite. Swelling begins right away, and discoloration of the cytobite varies between white to flaming reds, purples, and dark blues. Victims begin to experience nausea, vomiting, and excruciating pains and cramping. Victims begin to extreme, experience extreme thirst, and the liver and kidneys are damaged from the toxins that are filtering throughout the body. Hemorrhaging begins to form in the form of nosebleeds and bleeding from the mouth or eyes. Get the picture. And then... The venom, as it begins to destroy blood cells, a person usually bleeds to death internally. Quick deaths from a viper's bite are unusual, as usually it's suffering. And the study said that it grew with prolonged for one to two days that they dealt with these side effects. Isn't it interesting that he uses the example of the serpent in relation to the sin, because sin usually is an instant but usually it will begin to cause some suffering. And usually it will begin to cause pain. And usually it will begin to cause things to happen in which you can say, oh, I don't know what to do. And, and that's where we find that, that as they're going through the suffering and the point is that there's going through this way and, and the suffering of sin follows. And surely just as it is with our work with God is that we find that people can say all they want. Oh, being a Christian's hard and living for God's hard. And, and I always get this probably once every four, one, uh, a few months from some that says, Oh, pastor, being a Christian so hard. Man, it's hot up in here. Can I get a witness somebody? You know, y'all complained that it was cold. I emailed the school twice. Today's the day to preach on hell, folks, okay? I'm just telling you, because it is hot up in here. I know it. You think you're sweating. Pastor's like, woo, I'm losing pounds by the droves up in this piece. Now Watch. As it is, though, people say it's hard to be a Christian. But really what we find is, is Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's not the way of the Christian that's hard. For Proverbs 13 and 15 tells us the way of the transgressor is hard. The serpents are deadly, and they're representing that this is the case, that the Bible says much people died. And I'm almost done. Hang with me. I'm almost done. But just like sin, isn't it? Sin thrills and then it kills. See, sin has a pain. Sin will destroy. As I talked about last week, it's sin has consequences. and It's the soul. Ezekiel said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. We know James chapter 1 and verse 14 says, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. But when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, 
brings forth death. For Paul told the church of Rome, for the wages of sin is death. The serpent that inflicts the death is the same serpent that will tell you that God does not punish sin. But hear me today. There is a punishment to sin. The Bible says that sin is a debt, and when a person has a debt, the debt must be paid or the debtor is punished. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that sometimes it's nice to get out of debt. Anybody ever pay off a credit card bill? Mm, Can I get a witness? You know, the Dave Ramsey show when people call in and they scream, I'm debt free! That's my best Dave Ramsey impersonation. And they're screaming at the top of their lungs. They just paid off $40,000 of debt or $60,000 of debt. But listen, watch this. The debt that must be paid. Verse 6, now many of the people died in Israel. And that's putting it mildly, mildly. People are dropping like flies. People are dying all over the place. They're dealing with the side effects I just mentioned. And keep in mind, there's two to four million people in 12 square miles. Poisonous snakes are biting them, and they're getting sick, and they're dying. There is no hospital. There is no doctor. There is no anti-venom. There is no medicine. It is a desperate situation, and people are dying, and there is no cure available. What a tragic picture this one verse says when you begin to dive into it. That get the picture, 12 square miles, two to four million people. People are dying with these side effects all around. Get the picture. It's not cute. And yet we find that as they are dealing with this tragic condition, sin does the same. People left to themselves in a hopeless, helpless condition. We cannot change our situation. We can't save ourselves. And so what do the children of Israel do? They go And they begin to explore. When you've been bitten by a deadly snake, there's only two things you can do. You can go run and get help, or you can sit and die. And in our day and age, thank God for anti-venom and whatnot, and things that can heal some of those snakes, and they know the conditions. But the people of Israel begin to see the condition, and they do three things. Number one, they have conviction. Conviction is a good thing. Man, I wish I had time to preach on this. But thank God for conviction. Thank God for that inner voice that tells you you shouldn't do that. Thank God. That's God speaking to your heart. See, let me teach for a second. I know I told you we're into the deep end of the pool today, but but thank God. Conviction is from God. When you begin to get that sick feeling because you just did something you know you shouldn't have done, that's God telling you, wait a second, I'm trying to save you from this situation. When conviction is from God and it is a blessing from God, when all of a sudden you know that you've done something wrong, you feel it in your gut, you sense it in your heart, you hear the still small voice, you know that you know that that is God saying, hey, you got to do something because you're operating in a place and in a space that you shouldn't be operating and you got to be careful about that and so we find that their conviction and they go to Moses and they say we have sinned and then there's the confession the people say the very next verse we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and you and true conviction always follows full confession in fact confession not only follows conviction but conviction really forces confession The sinner has to get honest about the condition before they begin to achieve salvation. And then there's contrition. They say to Moses, Moses, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And the Bible says, period. So Moses prayed for the people. The final step is when you realize God's your only hope, that's when you begin to go to God. Say, God, help me. 
And that's when we begin to say they're convicted and they confessed and they acknowledged it. But, but then all of a sudden, the Lord begins to accomplish this in salvation. Incredibly, the cure for the serpent, let's all stand. The cure for the problem is not a pill and it's not a poison. It's not a potion. The solution is a brass serpent raised on a pole. And there's some truth to this. See, brass in the Bible is a symbol of judgment. And the judgment is up on this pole. Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is everyone who hangeth upon a tree. Do you see anything strange here? Get the picture. The cure for the serpent problem took the form of what caused the problem to begin with. It was a serpent that bit them, but it was a serpent that healed them. Catch this. Pastor's fixing to preach right here. When Jesus went to the cross, he died for our sins. Jesus had no sin of his own, but he was innocent of all sins, so he took our sins on himself. And he died for us. The innocent and the guilty had to be put up on a tree, on a pole. And so when people looked and said, hey, I can't get rid of the sin problem, Jesus said, I know how to solve that. But I've got to go up by myself. I've got to take the form. For the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, for he that hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. See, you got to catch that. He said, he who knew no sin had to be the sin for us that we may be righteous of God in him. That's the beauty of salvation of numbers that's why Jesus declares to Nicodemus he said just like in numbers 21 the only cure for the serpent was that a bronze serpent of judgment had to be broadcast and people had to look and say hey just like that it became just the sin just the problem and that's the way salvation is is I thank God that the only way to be saved from the things of sin was Jesus had to come down and robe himself in flesh and say I'm not only just going to robe my Myself in flesh, but I'm going to know no sin and then be delivered because I'm the only thing that can pay the price of sin. I thank God for grace that when I couldn't pay the price, He paid the price. That when I said that's too much for me to bear, He said, You can go to me and I can bear it. That's the beauty of the plan of salvation is that Jesus was the ultimate substitute. The cure was to become the cure. The cure was to be take on the form. It makes no sense. It is a miracle from God. It has never happened before. That they said, hey, if you're sick and you get bit by a snake, buy a bronze snake Put it on a pole and you'll be healed. Just look at it. I can't find that in any medical journal. I can't find it in anything of, of what. Now, if you could do that, you'd make a lot of money. Entrepreneurs are thinking, if I could just create a snake and sell it to people who live near snakes, I'd be rich. They call that snake oil, right? That You see that as a pun intended, right? Okay, right. Snake salesman. Okay, okay. They didn't get that. I need to scratch that off the jokes list. Bad joke. Get the picture that the plan of God's salvation is the exact thing that's revealed in the Old Testament. The way that people are saved in the New Testament. And it's the way people are still saved today. In Numbers 21, 
the way they were saved is they had to look to a substitute <laughs> provided by God that saved them. Looking to our Savior, Jesus, provided by God, robed himself in flesh, mm, is the only difference in Numbers 21 and what we see today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, the beauty of the situation is that he takes on the form to deliver us out of the form. That he begins to say, I am going to be instant and invaluable. He's going to bring us out of those. And the lessons that we say is that when we look to Jesus for salvation, mm, looking unto the author and finisher of our faith. Hear me today, somebody, that the people who died did not just die because they had been bitten. The people who died was because they refused to look. Oh, can I get a witness, somebody? Get the picture that that's all they had to do is look at the bronze statue and they were healed. They didn't have to go become a bronze statue. They didn't have to pay a price. Sin will always cause you to pay more than what you want to pay. It'll take you further than what you want to go and it will keep you longer than you intended to stay. Sin is dangerous. It is harmful and it is hurtful and it was punishable, but they don't have to be punished by it. In this room, we are all sinners saved by God and we still sin today. We are not perfect people. Can I get a witness somebody? But the way to get out of that is to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith to say, God, I can look on you and you can set me free. You can deliver me. I've got a word for somebody of deliverance in this house that somebody's been dealing with sin and you may have already experienced salvation, but the way to get out of that is to turn your attention from what you've been dealing with and your struggles and your addictions and you can be delivered out of that and you can be set free when you begin to look unto Jesus and you begin to say, God, it's not my own power, but I trust in you. It's not my own solution, but I trust in your salvation. It's not of my own accord but God I can begin to be set free that when my faith begins to struggle and my faith begins to shake and my faith is in shambles I'm here today to give a word to somebody that look unto Jesus and he'll begin to set you free take your steps unto him acknowledge him say God forgive me I repent help me oh God for here we find that there was a solution to the punishment there's a pardon to the sin. And Jesus already paid the price. Today, this altar is open. I wonder if, if you are in a situation where you need God to do something for you, this altar is open. Where if you need God to begin to say, God, I'm struggling with some stuff. I'm here today to tell you that the good news is he's already paid the price. And we don't need to be disgusted or we don't need to think it's worthless. God came to set the captive free. Jesus said, I came to deliver. I came to set the captive free. I came to, Lord, deliver. I came to begin to heal the brokenhearted. I begin to preach the good news. What he's telling to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, when you're talking about he must be born again, born of the water and born of the spirit. Oh, he that believeth on him. I'm here today to tell you that when you believe 
believe and you begin to confess, he can begin to set you free. He can begin to maneuver. I'm here today to tell you that when you begin to look on him, you can be delivered from what you're facing. When you begin to de decide that, God, I'm going to search you and I'm going to follow you. And God, I want more of you. This snake isn't going to get me. This serpent isn't going to get me. God, I'm not going to die in my sins, but I'm going to believe that you're going to set me free. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that oh, whosoever shall believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God didn't send the son to condemn the world, but through the world that might be saved. God came to save us, not condemn us, not to put us into punishment, not to say you're wrong, but he gave us an out. He gave us a way. He gave us a reason. And we can believe in him to say, God, I want to be born of the water. I want to be born of the spirit. I want to be set out of this darkness. In the name of Jesus. Yes, God. Hallelujah. Come on, let's lift your hands right now. Begin to say, God, I declare it. I thank you for it. Yes, God. Yes, God, that's it. I wonder if you begin to just thank him. If nothing else, you can begin to thank him right now. And begin to say, God, I thank you for salvation. That I don't have to face the punishment. That, God, you gave me a pardon because you loved us. That's a reason to rejoice. That's a reason to thank him. That, God, I follow you this morning. And I trust in you this morning. And I believe in you this morning. That, God, I follow you right now. For the wages of sin, God, I don't have to succumb to. But I can be delivered from. Yes, God. That's it. Come on. Hallelujah. That God can deliver you. That God can set you free. That he can heal your heart. Instead of saying, God, I'm frustrated, begin to say, God, I don't know why, but I trust. I follow. I give to you. Yes, God. Yes, God. That's it. Come on. That's it. Why don't you lay your hand on somebody and pray for them right now? Jesus. Yes, Lord, right now, in the name of Jesus. Father, we seek after you this afternoon, Jesus. Lord, we put our eyes upon you, God. Lord, help us in this world that we live in, oh God, to keep our focus and our mind on you, Lord Jesus. Lord, for out of you flows every good and every true thing, oh God. Lord, no more will we believe the lies of the enemy, oh God. But Lord, we declare today that we are free in you. Lord, that we are made strong in our weakness. Lord, that there's no other place for us to turn to. There's no other place for us to go, Jesus, that you are our strength. Lord, that you are the strength of our lives. And Lord, today we give you our strength, Jesus. Yes, Lord, that's it. Tell them today. Tell them today. Lord, there's no other place for me but to turn to you, Jesus. That's it, church. Lift your voice. Lift your voice. 
Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Lord, I'm moving forward in you today. Lord, we're moving forward in you today. Lord, we declare that our best days and our blessed days are not behind us, but they are in front of us, Lord. Lord, we're walking into your promise. Lord, we turn our eyes unto you today to be healed, to be set free, to receive forgiveness. Lord, we believe your word in faith. Yes, Lord. Lord, we believe what you say is true. We will no longer believe the lies of the enemy. But Lord, we trust in you. Jesus, name. on somebody around you and I want you to pray right now and here's what I feel led of the Holy Ghost I want us to pray and say God help us to thank you I want to thank God to not think things are worthless which God said they are valuable I wonder if you begin to say God I love the things of you today I just want our hearts to begin to go back to a love for them for the things that God provided for us he's a God of grace and mercy and there's grace and mercy in the house of God there's grace and mercy in the altar. There's grace and mercy before God. To begin to lift your voice and begin to say, God, there's grace today. I thank God for his grace. I thank God for his mercy. I thank God for what he's doing. For God, I don't take it lightly. Shukata la 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 la